following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning, everyone. It's, um, it's really surreal to be here um, in a lot of ways, and uh, partly because... Um, First of all, I just want to clarify, I met Barry when we were five, so, you know, we've been, we've been friends for 25 years, but no, but we were um, classmates at seminary, and we would actually, just back then, whimsically and very naively talk about, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could all end up at the same church together and serve together? So in a way, this is, for me, uh, a little bit of that, and um, so I'm really thankful to be able to be here and share with you today. Um, and another thing I am very aware of, as having done uh, some guest speaking before, is that my primary role today is to make you miss Barry. And, <laughs> and I will do that. I will do that. By the time we're done, you guys will be so glad to have him back. So Barry, get well. Um, and we, we are definitely thinking of you. So... Um, Today, I want to speak to you from Psalm 126, and it works so nicely because I know that you have already been in the Psalter uh, for several weeks now, and the preaching team here has been doing a fabulous job, because um, by the way, my family and I attend, and so we are here uh, usually in this service back there somewhere, and, and we've really enjoyed being able to hear the various Psalms being taught and preached so well. And so I want to hope to continue that. But unlike the other psalms you've heard about, uh, this is not a Davidic psalm. In fact, this psalm, Psalm 126, comes near the end of the Psalter. And it comes also not only late in the Psalter, but late in history. It comes from what we would call the post-exilic period, meaning this is the time in history after those uh, people, especially from Judah, who had been sent into exile in judgment and spent uh, several decades in Babylon and scattered in places like Egypt. Um, they are now back and they've returned. And the return of the exiles was initially a wonderfully promising time and an exciting moment in history because it felt like a second exodus. But the Psalter, uh, the psalmist is going to express the heart of the exilic community as they started to realize that perhaps um, the return would not be so easy. So I want to, uh, but I was thinking we don't have a frame of reference for the exile. Uh, none of us would really know what it means, the, the turmoil, the upheaval, the transitions. And so I thought, what, what in our own more recent history would be a wonderful way to help illustrate um, just the struggle of being in exile and maybe returning from exile and, and I realized there's this wonderful story in our own history that speaks to this. And it's the Great Migration. And so if you're not familiar with that term, it refers to a period of about 60, 70 years uh, in American history from about 1910 to 1970, when 6 million African Americans relocated from the South into the North and the West in the hopes of finding more opportunity, greater freedom, greater equality, and justice. And that great migration 
was undertaken initially in the hopes of just escaping the grip of Jim Crow and segregation and injustice in the South. And so that first wave of migrants would move into the great northern cities like Chicago and Philadelphia and New York in the hopes of finding a better life. And the poet um, Richard Wright sums this up beautifully. I'm going to just quote a little bit of his work here. He says, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently. To see if it could, I could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. And I think, and there's a story in a book by Isabel Wilkerson, a fabulous book called The Warmth of Other Suns, about the great migration. And she does this beautiful thing where she tells it through the eyes of two or three protagonists. And one of them stood out to me, Ida Mae Gladney. She was born in Chickasaw, Mississippi in 1913. And by 1937, because of danger to her family, she finally decided to join the great migration northward. And they made their way up to Milwaukee and eventually settled in Chicago. And there is such a huge transition to go from the cotton fields of Chickasaw to the, to the city of broad shoulders. And instead of fields white with cotton to be in a city white with snow. And what Ida May found was that life was not quite the dream she had hoped it would be. She went hoping perhaps to bloom, but found like so many black Americans in the north relocating that Jim Crow had a relative that lived up north named James Crow and that the specter of racism was still very real and the struggles were still hard. But Ida Mae would make a good life for herself. Her and her husband would settle in the south side of Chicago. She would eventually eke out a career as a hospital aide. And during her lifetime, remarkably, she got to see the civil rights movement. She got to become a fan of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. And at the very end of her life, she got to see a little bit of a taste, perhaps a harvest, perhaps a bloom of the life under this other sun in another soil. Because at the end of Ida Mae Gladney's life, she got to do something that no black American would have ever imagined was possible when they left the South during the era of Jim Crow. She got to cast a vote in an election for a fellow Chicagoan named Barack Obama. Her story reminds us that migration, exile, transition can be hard but it can also bring opportunity. And so there is going to be hard seasons accompanied by wonderful times of harvest, which is what this psalm speaks to. So let me begin in Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. Please join me. You can look on your page or on your screen, however. Um, and let me begin with the first part of the psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. 
Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Now, you might say this doesn't sound like a lament. But it is because the perspective of the psalmist is saying that was then and this is now. This is why he says we were like those who dreamed. He's saying that those good days, the excitement of the early days of the return, when we first left our lands of exile and traveled that arduous journey back and finally got to see our homeland again. Those were like a dream now. Because now that we've been here for a few decades, life is hard and reality sets in. You see, around that time, there were many nations that were still in that land who were not happy that the Jewish people were returning. So there was political and civil strife. Um, We saw how Nehemiah had to deal with this in his own struggle to build the walls of Jerusalem. But even decades earlier than that. The priest, Ezra, struggled to build the temple, rebuild it, because it was so difficult to get the people mobilized. And this is where the psalmist is located. He's in this community, and they are sitting and looking at a temple that is partially done, but still just a sad shadow of its former glory when Solomon had built it. In fact, some of the older exiles would weep at the sight of the current state of the temple. And this problem was not about a building project. This was really about a crisis of faith. For you see, the people were supposed to, the temple was supposed to be the place where God's glory would return and then dwell. And ultimately, it was supposed to be the place where the nations would come. To know the God of these people. But right now it was just rubble. And so as God does want to do. He raises up a people and says. I want you to rebuild this temple. But they're struggling. And this is where the psalmist is speaking. So then he turns. And then in verse 4 he cries out to the Lord. And he says, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. What does this image mean? Well, this is where I can help shed some light. And this is one of the few times where I do think um, that the English doesn't quite capture the full depth of what the psalmist is saying. When I hear, when I see streams in the Negev, It's really easy in my kind of current context to think of a brook peacefully flowing, maybe some birds singing, but that's not what the psalmist actually had in mind. The Negev was a dry, arid wilderness in the southern part of the Levant. It's the, it's the land that David and his ancestors would have known well because of how inhospitable it was most of the time. But in the Negev, during the rainy seasons, there would be these rare storms that would pop up. 
And they were so, uh, they were amazing. They were wonders of nature because uh, it would be like a few clouds in the distance. And within a matter of minutes, those clouds start to darken the horizon. And then the next thing you know, in this dry and arid place, there are torrential downpours. And not just that, the torrential downpours within a matter of hours start to fill those dry riverbeds that look like scars on the landscape. And they become rivers, not streams, not brooks. And some of these storms would go on long enough that the torrential downpour would then create out of the rivers raging rapids in the desert. And this phenomenon goes on even to this day. And so when the psalmist says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, that is what he's seeing. Not a brook, not a creek. He's seeing this clouds forming on the horizon as God brings blessing upon the people and pours them out. And that's what he's saying. Lord, do it again. You've done it before. We have seen your faithfulness before. We remember the exodus. We remember you giving us the land the first time. And then he's saying, now it feels like we've had a second exodus. Decades before you brought us back. And it felt like liberation. But it's hard. We're finding that maybe it's not what we had hoped it would be. And so he's saying, Lord, please do it again. We know you are capable. And this is where I want to show you how I think the Bible adds some depth that we may sometimes miss as to why the psalmist chooses this particular image. Because it is in this very time period that the Lord raised up a prophet. And the prophets were significant spokesmen for the Lord. And so in a sense, what we have between the prophet Haggai and this psalmist is a wonderful biblical dialogue because the psalmist gives us the human perspective from where we are, Lord, it looks dry and we are just thirsting for blessing. And then the prophet Haggai is commissioned to come to this struggling community and speak to them. For the Lord. And this is what Haggai does. In chapter 1 of Haggai. He goes on and he challenges them. He says part of the problem for you. Is that you have been too concerned about paneling your own homes. While my house remains in rubble. But then in chapter 2. The Lord brings a wonderful word of affirmation. Of comfort. And he's starting in verse 4. He says to them. This is what the Lord says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Look at that imagery. And I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So Haggai has ministered to this community and brought these words of challenge and comfort to them. And I believe that's what the psalmist is referring to. He's saying, yeah, Lord, I believe it. I know what your prophet said is true. You can shake the heavens and the earth once again. And we need you to do that. And that's what he means by like torrents in the desert 
like rivers in the Negev. Do it again, Lord, just as you said you would. And then the psalm closes with the part that's probably most familiar to so many of us. It's a beautiful image and one that I think we may not fully appreciate because we live in kind of a modern kind of context. And uh, I don't know that any of us here are too familiar with truly agrarian life. So in verses five and six, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying the seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This is, this is imagery that has then permeates all of scripture. But here, this imagery would have been especially poignant for the people listening to this song. Remember that the psalmist is a national song leader, so to speak. And he speaks in the voice of the people. And he speaks to the people through poetry and through music. And this, this psalm would likely have been sung in the temples during festivals and during certain religious observances. And so when they see that imagery, what is it that it's evoking in them? In that time and place, sowing was hard. Farming was difficult. It was the lifeblood of how they lived, but it came with great toil. And so this idea of sowing in tears and reaping with great joy would have been something that really uh, resonated with the people. Now, um, Del Tar is a missionary who served for many, many years in West Africa. And he shared how he learned from the African pastors he worked with what Psalm 126 really means. And this is a wonderful way for us to, to allow this imagery to resonate with us, perhaps, in ways that are difficult for a modern audience. So Deltar observed that in the Sahel, which is this vast area that's right under the Sahara Desert, that there are peoples that, that live by farming there. But the problem is they only have four months of, of rain. It's from about May to August that they call it the wet season. And then eight months of just essential nothing, no moisture, no rain, drought. Uh, we know that here, don't we? How that feels. And so think about that. Four months of rain, eight months of dry, arid weather. Think about how hard farming would be. And so they had to make the most of the wet season. And so they would... Uh, they would plant milo and sorghum, which are like beans and legumes. And their, their crops were basically grown in that four-month period. So Deltar observed that in October, November, that, that the months right after the harvest season in like September, it was wonderful. The communities were very vibrant. There was enough to eat. People would have, uh, on average, families would have two large meals a day. They would prepare the grain into uh, either oatmeal type of mush or like grits. Or they would make it into like little dough balls and bread that they could dip in sauce. And it was very, it, it was a time of great comfort and a sense of joy. 
And then around December and January, you start to notice that the granaries are starting to recede. And so families start rationing their food. Um, By February and March, most families are down to one meal a day. Perhaps maybe even just one cup of gruel per family member in the evening. And then Del Tar observed that uh, in April, he would start to notice that in the evenings, you would often hear the babies crying from hunger. It's just hard to be satisfied with what they were eating. And inevitably, around this time, children would come to their parents and say with great excitement, I found some grain. I was out in the storehouse and I noticed the sack and it's full. We can eat. Mom can make dinner again. And that is when the parents have to break this sad news to the children. No, we cannot. You see, that's our seed. That's not our daily bread. That's our harvest for tomorrow. And then the children would watch in May as the rains came and the parents started to do something that just seemed absolutely insane to them. They took perfectly good grain that could have been bread and grits and food and they started throwing it away. Just throwing it into the ground. Burying it. And this is why the African pastors say, That this is the law of the harvest. Brothers and sisters, this is God's law of the harvest. Do not expect to rejoice later on unless you have been willing to sow in tears. And this is the imagery that the people would have been responding to as they hear the words of the psalmist saying. But the psalmist is not saying it in a heavy or negative way he's telling them that the law the lord of the harvest is good and the lord of the harvest can be trusted and so the law of the harvest is dependable so let's get back to sowing let's rebuild the temple let's restore our faith and our trust and our bond with our god and trust him Yes, it's been hard back in the land. Returning from exile is not what we thought it would be. Maybe we don't feel like we're quite blooming and prospering under the warmth of another sun. But God is good. He's been trustworthy before and we can trust him again. And so as we look at Psalm 126, I think it provides us with some wonderful gifts that we can receive even here today At IBC. The first is one that you may miss, and that is lament is a gift from God. I often talk to my students in class and I say, Could you imagine what the Bible would feel like if we did not have the Psalms? And what you realize is that the that the Psalms provide for us. So much heart and soul. But on a deeper level, the Psalms, even the laments, even the negative Psalms, the questions, the doubts, 
they actually are a gift because they, what they do is they say to us, God sees you and he understands you. And if you are hurting, if you are in a place where it doesn't feel like the rains of blessing are in your life, God does not say, get over it. He does not say to you, have more faith. Trust me. What he says is, it's okay to cry. When you have lost, I see and I feel your loss. Lament is permission to grieve, to weep, to question. But the other thing Psalm 126 does, it reminds us that we do have a God who can shake the heavens and the earth. He can shake the nations. And though the exiles may not have gotten to see the full fruit of the harvest that Haggai was speaking of, we are one step closer, aren't we? Because we know the desire of nations. It's Jesus Christ. And we know him. So we have seen, we have heard, our eyes have seen and our ears have heard things that our ancestors in the faith longed to see. And many never got to. But we have. So we're reminded we can call out to God and say, Restore our fortunes, bring blessings like raging torrents in the desert, like rivers in the Negev. And then finally, we are reminded that we live and work as followers of Jesus under a Lord of the harvest who has a good law of the harvest. And that is this. When you reap, you will sow. And that that thinking permeates even the New Testament. Paul, whether he was talking to the Corinthians about giving, talked about sowing and reaping. When he talked to the Galatians about persevering in doing good, he said, no, that in due season there will be a harvest. You will reap what you sow. So continue to persevere in doing good. But you know where we see the height Of this, it's with Jesus himself. Jesus knew the law of the harvest in his heart and his soul and his very body and his bones. So as we we wrap up, I just want to reflect on how Psalm 126, the lament, the cry, and the hope brings us to Jesus. How wonderful that we follow Jesus, a Lord and a Savior who knows this in his own body and soul. You know why? Because he lived it. In the garden, he sowed his very life in tears. And the author of Hebrews beautifully says he did it for the joy that would be set before him. A joy of a great harvest that he knew would come. So in John 12, 24 through 25, Jesus replied, The hour has come 
for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And it's in Hebrews 12, the author says, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, so much of life in ministry, so much of life following Jesus as one of his disciples is going to be these short seasons of blessing and interminably long months of sowing in tears. The harvest of great joy happens at times, but it's cyclical. And there's also going to be seasons of sowing where you are going to wonder, will God ever hear my prayer for my family member? Will, my, will God ever answer this prayer regarding me or my family or my friends or this church? And at times you will feel like it just seems like a desert and there is no end to the dryness. But remember that in the faithfulness of our sowing, as we emulate Christ, that even in the tears, we never lose hope that a harvest of great joy is to come. And so now I would like to invite you to the table for communion. And I know that we're used to a certain way of thinking about the Last Supper and the night that Jesus would prepare his disciples for his death. But today I want to add to the reflection this thought. How beautiful that the bread that would be broken is this bread of life. But that it comes from the fruit of the kernels of grain that fall to the ground and die. How beautiful that the fruit of the vine that would become the wine that they drank was also the product of seeds sown and a harvest to come. And so now I'm going to invite you as the Apostle Paul taught. He said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Join with me in eating this. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. And now, as it is customary here at IBC, I want to invite you to a time of response. For some of you, this may be a time of hope or healing. For others, it may be a time to respond. Perhaps you have known the call of Christ, 
but you've never had the opportunity yet to trust him with your life. The one who has sown his life in tears for you is here and he is waiting. We will also have our deacons and our prayer team down here and they will be ready to spend time with you as you respond to maybe what the Lord may be doing today in your life. And finally, I'm going to invite you to join with our worship team to respond right where you are in worship and praise to our God, who is good, a good Lord of the harvest, and to Jesus, who sowed his life in tears, that we might be part of this wonderful harvest of great joy. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.